let's, uh, let's open up our time together in a word of prayer really quick. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this opportunity we have to study your word together. Lord, I pray that um, you would work through your word this morning, that you would open our eyes to help us see what is in it, what you have to say to us. Lord, I pray that your word would be taught in truth and that you would accomplish what you want to do among us this morning. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. All right, well, we are continuing our series in Zechariah this morning, so go ahead and turn with me there. Zechariah chapter 1. I'll set the context for the passage in just a second, but I'm going to read the passage for you first. Again, that's Zechariah chapter 1. We're going to start at verse 18 and go through chapter 2. Zechariah chapter 1, verses 18, all the way through chapter 2. And I lifted up my eyes, and I saw, and behold, four horns. And I said to the angel who was speaking with me, what are these? And he said to me, these are the horns which have scattered Judah and Israel and Jerusalem. And Yahweh showed me four craftsmen. And I said, Who are these who are coming to work? And he spoke, saying, These are the horns which have scattered Judah, so that no man may lift his head. And these have come. These have come to terrify them. And to scatter Judah. And they have come... Sorry, lost my place in my reading. Um, And these have come to terrify them and to throw down the horns of the nations who have lifted up the horn against the earth, against the land of Judah to scatter them. And then chapter 2. And I lifted up my eyes and I saw, and behold, a man, and in his hand a measuring line. And I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem to see what is its width and what is its length. And behold, the angel who was speaking with me went out, and another angel went out to meet him, and said to him, Run, say to that young man, saying, Jerusalem will dwell as an open field, on account of the many men and beasts that are in its midst. And I will be to it, declares Yahweh, a wall of fire surrounding it, and I will be glory in its midst. Up, up, and flee from the land of the north, declares Yahweh. For like the four winds of the heavens, I have scattered you, declares Yahweh. Up, O Zion, flee, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. For thus says Yahweh of hosts, in pursuit of glory he has sent me to the nations who have plundered you. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. For behold, I will shake my hand over them, and they will be as plunder for their slaves. And you shall know that Yahweh of hosts has sent me. Rejoice, and be glad, O daughter of Zion. For behold, I am coming, and I will dwell in your midst, declares Yahweh. 
and many nations will be joined to Yahweh on that day, and they will be my people. And I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that Yahweh of hosts sent me to you. And Yahweh will take possession of Judah as his portion upon the Holy Land. And he will again choose Jerusalem. Hush all flesh from before Yahweh, for he is roused from his holy dwelling. When we are used to reading Romans and Galatians and Acts and those kind of books, this kind of prophecy that we get from Zechariah can be a little bit weird to us. Right, we, I think we've kind of seen that as we've looked at, at Zechariah even just these few weeks. This is hard stuff to get our minds around when we're used to Paul's doctrinal theology in the New Testament or reading through the history of 1 Samuel or those kinds of things. Uh, but if we take the time, we slowly work our way through it, I think we can profit greatly from what Zechariah has to say here as we look at some of these apocalyptic symbols and, and prophecies and all these kinds of things. Uh, but before we look at the text this morning, I just want to set the context for you again. You'll remember that at the very beginning of Zechariah, which we covered a couple of weeks ago, Zechariah is issuing a call to repentance to the Israelites in his own day. Right? They've just come back from the Babylonian exile. The land of Canaan is in disarray. And Zechariah says, hey, if you don't want to be like your fathers who sent everyone into exile, you will repent and turn to God. And then God will bless you. And God will not exile you again. So as a call to repentance, the first six verses of Zechariah. And then after that, last week, we looked at the first of the eight night visions. And the eight night visions stretch from the middle of chapter one all the way into chapter six. So the first of the eight night visions is what we looked at last week. And that vision was the vision of the horsemen. You remember, we looked at the red, the sorrel, the white horses, and all this kind of stuff. And this weird imagery. And we talked about what all of that meant, why Zechariah was having these visions. And, and we saw that the vision of the horseman was designed to show the power and the all-knowing nature of God. That is that these horses are going all over the world. They're reporting to God what is happening. And God is not ignorant of what's happening in the day of Zechariah's writing. He knows what, are, what the nations are up to. And he knows that all of the nations are at rest except Israel. And that's what was so disturbing for the Israelites, is they know the Persian Empire is stable, Darius has taken the throne, there's no war going on, but Israel is in spiritual turmoil because they don't know if God's promises are for them because David is not on the throne. The Davidic covenant seems to be on the verge of falling off a cliff as if God has forgotten about them. And in that vision of the horsemen, as we saw last week, God establishes, no, I do know what's going on. I see what the nations are doing. I see that they are at rest, and I see that you are not at rest. But you need to trust me. You need to trust me and be faithful. We saw that last week. Now, we move into the second and the third of the eight night visions today. The second and the third. In the, the last part of chapter one here, we deal with the vision of the horns. And then in chapter two, you have the vision of the measuring line. And we're going to talk about what those visions mean. And what we're going to see, I think, is that these visions establish that God is all-powerful and that he will use that power to protect his people. 
Right? God is all-powerful, and he will use that power to protect his people. I think that's what these visions show us. So let's, uh, let's get into this a little bit. Uh, chapter 1, verse 18. Here we have the vision of the horns. And I lifted up my eyes, and I saw, and behold, four horns. And I said to the angel who was speaking with me, What are these? And he said to me, These are the horns which have scattered Judah and Israel and Jerusalem. So just setting the, the image here of what Zechariah is seeing, right? He sees four horns. And when you think of horn, don't think like a trumpet or like a musical horn. That's what I thought when I was first reading this. Like he saw four trumpets or something. No, the horns that he's talking about here, at least the Hebrew word for horn, means like antler or like the horn on an animal or multiple horns. So think like Texas longhorn. That's the kind of horn that Zechariah is seeing right here. Okay? And here's what's significant about that. Uh, when I was growing up, I spent a lot of time hunting. I don't know if any of you have ever done much hunting before, but in North Dakota, deer hunting was a big thing. And it was a big thing because there just plain weren't that many deer to hunt because they keep dying in the cold winters that we have up there. So it was hard to get a tag, but if you could get a hunting tag, which I did, the only time I ever got one was when I was 14. Every other year I've been denied one because there just weren't enough. So I got one when I was 14, and I took my 270 rifle, and we went out deer hunting, went out with my grandpa, my dad, and my uncle. We always went together every year, whether we got a tag or not. And uh, we went out there, not to, to do any poaching or anything, but we hunt together, and then whoever did get a tag would put that tag on whichever one was shot. Anyway, so we would go out hunting. And the task of deer hunting, if any of you have ever done it or know people who do it, you want to try to get the biggest deer you possibly can. You want the biggest antlers, the biggest horns, if you will, that's on the animal. And you want a big animal. Not just so that you get more meat or anything like that, but just mostly for bragging rights. You know, I shot a, a 4x4. Oh yeah, well I shot a 6x6. And that's how many horns that they have. So you want to shoot the biggest one so you have bragging rights. And that's kind of how it was in the ancient world, too. When you, when you wanted to slay an animal, you want to slay the biggest animal with the biggest horns, because that's bragging rights. It, it tells people, whether it's true or not, you might have just been lucky, but it seems to tell people, if you have a bigger animal, that you are more powerful. And you raise up those horns, you mount them, you put them on your wall, whatever. You show people, hey, I got the biggest animal. That's how good of a hunter I am. That's how powerful I am. That's the image of the horns for ancient Israel and just for the Middle East in general. Horns are symbolic of earthly power and domination because that's the entrance into manhood. You get your big animal. You hoist up those big horns that you got that you chopped off of the, the animal's head. You're showing that you are powerful when you do that. So when Zechariah sees horns here, what he's seeing is earthly powers. That's what's, that's what's symbolized by these horns. So he's seeing earthly dominions, like kingdoms, rulers. There, there are some commentators that try to pinpoint which rulers he sees. Like, okay, he sees four kingdoms. Well, it's maybe the Persians and the Babylonians and that sort of thing. I, I, most the Commentators I've consulted, though, don't think that Zechariah is trying to make reference to specific kingdoms here but rather the four horns are simply symbolic of the four directions of the earth, like north, south, east, and west. And so if that's in view here, then what Zechariah is seeing is he's just saying, I saw four horns. Namely, I saw 
all of the kingdoms of the earth. I saw them all. All the powers that dominate the land. I saw them. And they, he asked what these are. What are these horns? And the angel says, these are the horns, or these are the earthly powers that scattered Judah and Israel and Jerusalem. So think about it. He's seeing Babylon here. That's what's being described in some other nations. He's seeing nations that have done evil against God's people. Nations that have scattered them, brought them into exile. This is exactly what Nebuchadnezzar did with uh, the kingdom of Babylon. He brought all the Israelites into Babylon. He exiled them. He scattered them around the globe. Assyria did this with the northern kingdom of Israel, if you remember from a few weeks ago. Assyria came into the northern kingdom and actually planted people in the northern kingdom after they conquered it, other people groups, Gentiles, and they planted themselves in there and took some, some of the Jews from the northern kingdom elsewhere and that caused a whole bunch of intermarrying and so you had a whole bunch of half-Jews. And that's where we get the Samaritans that were talked about in the New Testament. So these evil nations is what Zechariah is seeing here, the ones that have scattered God's people all over the place. They've scattered them. They've destroyed the land. Now, that's the first part of the vision. Right? So Zechariah is seeing all these earthly powers who have done these things. Then in verse 20, he sees something else. And Yahweh showed me four craftsmen. So you've got the four horns, and now you've got four craftsmen. And I said, who are these who are going to work? And he said, saying, these are the horns which scattered Judah. So he calls the four craftsmen four horns. These are the four horns, but now we're seeing those four horns from a different perspective. What are these four horns? What did they do? Well, they scattered Judah so that no man could lift his head. And these four horns, these craftsmen who are identified now, have come to terrify them and to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horn against the land of Judah to scatter it. Now, I admit, this is, this is a little difficult to follow unless you're really paying attention to what's going on here. At the beginning of the vision, Zechariah sees four horns, the earthly powers, who have destroyed Israel. And then he says he sees four craftsmen. And Yahweh says, those four craftsmen are the four horns. And here's what those four craftsmen are going to do. They're going to bring judgment upon the nations who scattered <clears throat> Israel. So here's what we're seeing here. If you, if you think carefully, this is what you're seeing. God is describing the kingdoms of the earth in two different ways. From one perspective, the horns, these earthly powers, are simply people who have done evil. From another perspective, the second perspective, they're not random horns. They're not random powers. They are craftsmen. That is, they are employed by God to accomplish His will. And what God is going to do with these horns, what God's going to do with these craftsmen, these powers, is he's going to now turn their guns away from his people and he's going to turn their guns on themselves. And they're going to come after the nations who destroyed Israel. So what you should be beginning to see here is the omnipotence of God being put on display. Because what God is saying is that these nations are not random. They're not just doing their thing. 
they are under the sovereign ordination of God. They don't do anything unless God allows them to. Now, that doesn't excuse that they came against Israel and committed evil by destroying God's people. Right? God's, God's sovereignty doesn't dismiss human responsibility and culpability. But, at the same time, those nations do not act completely autonomously, completely without any regard for God's sovereignty. God is still in control of everything. And he is going to use these nations to destroy themselves. And if you look at history, you can actually see this play out, at least in a, uh, a certain sense. Because you can see that the kingdom of the earth at the present time that Zechariah is writing is Persia. Persia is in control of Israel and pretty much the whole known world at this time. Does anyone know what kingdom came and conquered Persia, destroyed it? Greece. Yeah, Greece, exactly right. Who, who led that kingdom? Like Greece. Do you know? What's that? Yeah, that's right, Alexander the Great. He led the Greek kingdom that destroyed Persia. And just for bonus points, does anybody know what kingdom came and conquered the Greek kingdom? That's right, the Romans. The Roman Empire came and conquered them. So you can see, this prophecy plays out a little bit if you just watch history. No empire lasts forever. And God brought judgment upon all of these kingdoms. Babylon, Assyria, Persia, etc. For controlling and dominating his people. But that's the message here. Just not, not that, but the message is the omnipotence of God to use the nations the way that he wants to. Nothing is random. He's telling his people that right now. He's telling us that. Nothing is random. He controls everything. Now, that is the vision of the horns. And you'll see the next vision is very closely associated with that. In this vision of the horns, God is showing his omnipotence and he's showing that he will protect his people. He's going to bring judgment on these nations who are oppressing them. Chapter 2, verse 1, this next vision of the measuring line, is going to correct a false interpretation of the vision of the horns. And God's going to make it really clear what this protection looks like. Let's look at chapter 2, verse 1. Here's that, this third vision. And I lifted up my eyes, and I saw, and behold... A man, and in his hand a measuring line. And I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see what is its width and what is its length. To see what's its width and what's its length. Here's what this guy's doing. And we're told in just a couple of verses, this is a young man. This young man comes, and Zechariah sees him, and he's going to Jerusalem, and he's got a measuring line tape measure, basically, a long one. And he is trying to determine the boundaries of the city of Jerusalem. Now, here's why this is important. You remember in chapter 1, it's the text we were looking at last week, we were told by God that he would rebuild Jerusalem. God promised that he would return to Jerusalem, he'd return to Judah, and he would rebuild this city. And this is what this man is doing, is he is now engaging in the beginning processes of a construction project. Because remember, Jerusalem's been destroyed. Nebuchadnezzar destroyed it. And the Jews now have to rebuild it. And this man, in the vision, is measuring out the city of Jerusalem. How big is this going to be? Where are we going to have the boundaries? Where are we going to put the walls? 
Because in the ancient world, city boundaries were determined by where your wall was. Think Jericho, right? Jericho was known for having its big, massive walls. The city is all inside the walls. If you're outside the city, you're not really part of the city. You're just kind of right outside of it, sort of mooching on the economy. But the city itself is everything inside the walls for the ancient world. That's really weird for us today because we don't, we don't have walls around our cities today. Last I checked, Pearl doesn't have a wall around it. Now, maybe it does. I've just never seen it, but I don't think it does. I've never heard of it. We don't have walls around our cities today, which is why they just continue to expand and expand and expand as people build on the outside. In the ancient world, you didn't do that. You had a wall. If you wanted to make the city bigger, you had to tear down part of the wall and then add a section and make that wall encompass that section. So as this man is measuring out the boundaries of Jerusalem to see how wide it's going to be and how long it's going to be, he's measuring where the walls are going to go. Where are we going to put the boundaries for the city? How big will this reconstruction project be? And what's interesting is that in verse 3, the angel himself comes and corrects this young man's misunderstanding of these prophecies. See, the young man thinks that when God says, I will rebuild Jerusalem, that that means that he's going to rebuild the physical city only. Which is true as far as it goes, but there's far more to this prophecy than that. The angel comes in verse 3 and says this, And behold, the angel who was speaking with me went out, and another angel went out to meet him. And he said to him, saying, Run, say to that young man, saying, so to that guy with the measuring line, here's what the angel was commanded to say to that man who's attempting to measure Jerusalem. Behold, Jerusalem will dwell as an open land. Now, some of your translations there might say something like, Jerusalem will dwell as a city without walls. I think some of you probably have that. I think the ESV has that. I'm not sure what some of the other ones have. And that, that catches the, the drift of it, right? The verse is saying Jerusalem will be a city without walls. In the Hebrew, it literally says the city will be an open pasture land. So this man is measuring the city wrongly. He thinks that when God says he will rebuild Jerusalem, that he needs to figure out where the boundaries are going to be. Where are we going to have the walls? What will this new physical city be like that God is rebuilding? And the angel says, oh yeah, by the way, this Jerusalem that God is building is going to be a city without walls. There will be no boundaries. It will stretch on like an open pasture land for acres and acres and acres. And indeed, it won't have limits. Jerusalem will dwell as an open field on account of all of the people and the animals in its midst. This city is going to be so big, you can't encompass it with walls. There's going to be so many people here. It cannot be a physical city. Verse 5, And I will be to it, declares Yahweh, a wall of fire surrounding it. And I will be glory in its midst. Notice what's being said here. Jerusalem will not have a physical wall. This city that's God, that God is building is not going to have physical boundaries. The only boundaries that will be prescribed will be spiritual boundaries. Boundaries that God himself prescribes. 
God himself is the boundary, and he's a boundary of fire. He will be the walls. He will decide who is in this city and who is not. But you cannot measure it with a tape measure. Now, if if you're not catching where I'm going with this, you should begin to see, as I was talking about last week, the prophecies of Zechariah extend far beyond literal, physical Israel. Did Jerusalem get rebuilt physically? Yeah, to some extent, it did. But you see, these prophecies cannot be fulfilled in literal Israel. They extend beyond that. They extend to what we could call a spiritual Jerusalem. And as we continue through Zechariah, as we continue looking at these prophecies, what we're going to see even more clearly as we keep going, as I keep promising, is that we're going to see that this Jerusalem that God is building is something today that we call the New Testament church. Because what better way could we describe the church than a city without walls? A city without physical walls. That is, the church is the city of God in which God himself is the spiritual walls deciding who is in this city. And these walls are a fire. Fire symbolizing the presence of the spirit of God. A coincidence is that at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was poured out with fire, establishing those walls. We'll look at Acts 2 a little bit later. But that's, that's what Zechariah is getting at here. There is a spiritual Jerusalem on its way that is going to meet what this prophecy says. We'll see that in just a little bit as we keep going here. Verse 6, this vision continues. Remember, the angel is still speaking here. The angel is still speaking to this man with the measuring line. This man who thinks that Jerusalem is going to be a physical entity. Verse 6, up, up, and flee from the land of the north, declares Yahweh. For like the four winds of heaven, I will scatter you, declares Yahweh. Up, O Zion, flee, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. Here God's warning those people, those Jews who are still in the land of the kingdoms that God's going to destroy. He says, hey, get out of there. Get out of there. I'm going to bring judgment on them. And those nations who scattered you, I will scatter them. Some irony going on here. I will scatter them. Get out of there. Flee from the land of the north. Don't dwell with the daughters of Babylon. Get out of there. Verse 8. For thus says Yahweh of hosts, In pursuit of glory he has sent me to the nations who have plundered you. For those who touch you touch the apple of his eye. Now there's, you may have noticed this as I read that, there's some, um, some discrepancy, not discrepancy, there's some disagreement on how exactly to translate that particular verse as you look at the Hebrew. Some of you might have something like, after glory he sent me, or something like that. Um, the reason why I've translated it as in pursuit of glory is because I think that what's being described here is that God is sending someone. Yahweh is sending someone to the nations to bring judgment on them in order to bring glory to God. God is sending someone in order to bring glory to himself. So I'm sending someone after glory. I'm sending someone in pursuit of my glory. So that's my rationale there. For thus says Yahweh of hosts, in pursuit of glory he has sent me to the nations who plundered you. We'll talk about who he sent in just a second. But notice how God's people are described in that second half of verse 8. 
He who touches you. The one who touches you, O Israel, is touching the apple of his eye. That's how God sees his people. The apple of his eye. The ones who get all of his attention. The ones that he is carefully watching and preserving and protecting. And that's us. Because we're his people, no less than Israel was. The one who touches you touches the apple of his eye. And it's for that reason that God is going to bring judgment and to glorify himself in the destruction of these nations who have attacked his people. Now, first half of verse 8. For thus says Yahweh of hosts, in pursuit of glory, he has sent me. He has sent me to the nations. Who's the me? Look at the text. Take a second. I'm looking for an answer. Who's the me? Yahweh has sent me. Okay. All right. So we have Jesus. Anyone else want to take a shot? How about just, you may be jumping ahead of me there, Robert, but let's look at the text and just say who in the text is speaking. Who's that? Okay, Yahweh could be. So Yahweh sending himself. Yahweh has sent me. I don't know if we could say it's necessarily Yahweh because Yahweh is the one doing the sending. Yahweh has sent me. This is repeated a couple of times in this chapter 2. Who else could it be? Could it be the guy that's writing this book? Zechariah? Okay, I mean, it's possible. Who's speaking in the context? Do you remember? Who's the one speaking in chapter 2 from verse uh, verse 5 on? No, from verse 4 on. The angel. That's right, the angel who's been speaking with Zechariah so far in this book. So the angel says, if we take that first person as being speech of the angel, the angel says, Yahweh will send me to the nations. An angel, not the angel of the Lord. Any, oh, it could be the angel of the Lord. It's not, we're not told, it's just the angel who is speaking not with me. <clears throat> well, that's true, but there's no capitals in the Hebrew. Yeah, you have to imagine them, right? So what you, what you're saying is that your translators have taken angel as just an angel. They just haven't capitalized it. But in the Hebrew, there's no caps. That's an interpretation that they're doing right there. So we have an angel that's speaking. And an angel says, Yahweh will send me. Let's look at verse, um, verse 10. I think it's going to become clear who this angel is as we keep going. Verse 10. Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Zion. For behold, I am coming. Oh, I'm sorry. We skipped verse 9. Let's go back to verse 9. Uh, verse 9. For behold, I will shake my hand over them, and they will be as plunder for their slaves. And you shall know that Yahweh of hosts has sent me. Now, who's the one doing the shaking of the hand? The angel. 
Now, you could try to make a case that Yahweh is speaking here and the angel is simply speaking on Yahweh's behalf. But on both ends, we're told, Yahweh of hosts has sent me. I will shake my hand. Yahweh of hosts has sent me. I think the angel is the one doing the shaking of the hand here because it's couched between two pronouns, I or me, that cannot refer to Yahweh himself. So we have here the angel saying, I will shake my hand over these nations and they will be plunder for their slaves. I realize we're doing some some technical, exegetical work of just looking very carefully at the text here. But it seems to me the angel is being described as having power to simply wave his hand over a nation and it crumbles. Yes, Robert. Question. In your version, what is, read the first clause of verse 8. First clause of verse 8. Um, for thus says Yahweh of hosts. Okay. Yes. I must do something. Yahweh of hosts is not the angel. Right. Okay. Right. Not strictly speaking. We'll get there. Right. I, I see what you're asking. We'll get there. But thus says, yeah, right, all of this is technically what Yahweh is saying. But I'm saying that Yahweh of, thus says Yahweh of hosts, in pursuit of glory, he has sent me. The me at that point can't be Yahweh. It has to be somebody else, the one who's speaking. Right? Because the angel is speaking, but the angel is giving the word of Yahweh. And then the angel says something about himself in the word of Yahweh. Does that make sense? I realize there's some tricky stuff in Hebrew poetry when it comes to, you know, um, all of this kind of thing. Who's speaking? Who's the I? Who's the you? Because the, the author is constantly changing who he's thinking about. But I think even though it says, thus says Yahweh of hosts, in pursuit of glory, he has sent me. The angel's still speaking here, even though he's delivering the word. And I think the angel's saying he's the one being sent. Anyway, in light of that, in light of verse 8 and verse 10, as they both talk about uh, sorry, verse 8 and verse 9, as they both talk about the angel being sent. I think it's the angel that's being described as waving his hand and having power over the nations. Now, here's why that's important. Do angels have power over nations? No, not No, right. I mean, if God gave it to him, I suppose. But nowhere in Scripture do we have any account of angels having power to just knock nations over by shaking of their hand. And that's why so many commentators on Zechariah will say that this angel who is speaking with Zechariah is not simply an angel. Not simply one of the heavenly hosts, but rather the commander of the heavenly hosts. And that commander of the heavenly hosts, the angel of the Lord, is not simply an angel. It's actually someone more. There's only one being in the universe who has the power to snap his fingers and knock nations over. That's God. That's right. And this is why, like I said, so many commentators see this angel who's speaking with Zechariah as a pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. And that becomes more clear in chapter 3 as we look at it next week. But we have to save that for next week. Let's keep going here. I think this becomes even more clear. Verse 10. Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Zion. For behold, I am coming, and I will dwell in your midst, declares Yahweh. 
Now there, that first person's talking about Yahweh because it specifically says this is what Yahweh is saying about himself. Yahweh will dwell in your midst. And many nations will be joined to Yahweh on that day and they will be my people. So are they Yahweh's people or the angels' people? Yahweh's, okay. Yahweh has just been described in the third person, and now all of a sudden, he's in the first person. See, it's kind of weird. This is why I say this is a really weird passage to deal with who the I is. Many nations will be joined to Yahweh on that day, and they will be my people. It's just weird. We, in English, we would say something like, many nations will be joined to Yahweh, and they will be his people. Because we want to keep that third person. But here it's got the first person. This is very strange. Very strange. And I will dwell in their midst, or in your midst, and you will know that Yahweh of hosts has sent me to you. There again, we've got what sounds like Yahweh being in first person. These are attributes of God being described. And yet the angel still keeps referring to himself in the first person too. It's like there's almost an intentional ambiguity between the words of Yahweh and the words of this angel. As if it's almost on purpose that you can't tell who's speaking and who's not. And Verse 12, And Yahweh will take possession of Judah as his inheritance upon the Holy Land. And he will again choose Jerusalem. Hush all flesh from before Yahweh, for he is roused from his holy dwelling. God is not asleep. Yahweh is not asleep. To the Israelites, it seemed like he was asleep. But Zechariah is saying, listen, God, he's never been asleep. He's borrowing an expression from Canaanite writings here. The gods are like asleep and they get aroused. God's not asleep, but what Zechariah is saying is he is now making himself known to you in a way where he seemed like he's been asleep. It seems like he has been away from you, not thinking about you. But no, he's waking up. He is coming. And he is going to bring the judgment that he has promised. And he's not only going to bring the judgment that he's promised, but he's going to bring the protection that he's promised. And that protection is to build a spiritual city of Jerusalem. And who's going to do it? Well, it seems like in this passage, the one who's going to bring protection to God's people, the one who's going to make it possible for God to dwell with his people, seems to be this one that Yahweh is sending. And you shall know that Yahweh has sent me. And you shall know that Yahweh has sent me. You hear that reverberating through the second half of this chapter. Someone is being sent by Yahweh. And someone, it appears, who seems to be able to refer to himself as Yahweh and speak as Yahweh in first person. And make it almost intentionally ambiguous to figure out which one is speaking between the angel and Yahweh. I think we've got the angel of the Lord, Jesus Christ himself, being described here. Because everything that is ascribed to Yahweh here, I will dwell with you, they shall be my people. All of those things can be attributed to Jesus. And they can be attributed to God the Father. They can be both. 
And furthermore, if we read the rest of Scripture and we begin to see, especially in the Gospel of John, the way Jesus is described, Jesus is described as the one who has been sent by God, the Father. Right? That's what he's always talking about in the Gospel. If you haven't picked up on that yet in Pastor Adam's sermons, you'd pay attention to that. Pretty much Jesus' central focus in John is to say, I've been sent by the Father. I've been sent by the Father. You won't see that I've been sent by the Father unless you are of me, unless God the Father draws you to me. I've been sent. The Father in John is characterized as the one who sends, and Jesus is the one who is sent. Well, here in Zechariah 2, you have Yahweh as the sender, and this angel is the one being sent. And everything he says can be ascribed to Yahweh, and everything Yahweh says can be ascribed to him. And there's an intentional, I think, intertwining of the language here that shows, I think, that Jesus is being described. And again, if you're skeptical about that, if you're wondering about that, I think we're going to see it even more clearly as we keep going, especially in chapter 3, in the fourth night vision. But I won't spoil that for you. You'll have to come back next week to hear about that. But just bringing this all home here as we bring it to a close, let me remind you. These two visions are described here. They are given to Zechariah, to the original Israelite audience, as well as to us today, to remind us of the great truth of Scripture, that God has all power over all nations in the whole world, and He will protect His people. He will build for them a city. Not a city that can be measured with a tape measure but a city that has spiritual walls of fire. And God himself are those walls. We are a part of that city as Christians. We are a part of that city. And that city is only possible because God sent someone. He sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to accomplish what needed to be accomplished for us to be a part of that city. Zechariah's audience may not have understood the full ramifications of every detail of this prophecy, but that's the nature of prophecy. You don't usually understand it until later revelation comes along to clarify it. And that's what we have here. And praise God that we are a part, not of a physical city, but of a spiritual city. Because if we put our faith in physical cities, in physical walls, and we build up these walls for ourselves of physical health or money or prosperity or all these kinds of things, they're all going to fall like the walls of Jericho. We need God to be our walls and we need to be part of his spiritual city that we call the church of Jesus Christ. Okay? All right, let's pray. We'll look at chapter three in the fourth vision next week. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for Zechariah. Lord, we know that some of this text is difficult and there are uh, different views of all kinds of things and Lord we, we strive to understand this as best as we can we strive to study it strive to make sense of it because that's what you called us to do Lord help us as we study this to, to see what you have to say open our eyes to your truth and most of all open our eyes to seeing you Jesus in the Old Testament Lord we know the Old Testament is all about you you're everywhere you're on every page whether obviously or not so obviously. Lord, help us to see you. Most of all, Lord, as we study these, help us to see your gospel. Help us to see the payment that you paid for our sins. Help us to trust in you and not in ourselves. 
Help us to rely on the spiritual walls of your Father, not on our own walls that we try to construct for ourselves. Give us strength to trust your word and to live by it. And we pray now that you would prepare us to worship you in spirit and in truth in the worship service this morning. In the holy and precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.